thing it is to be able to open the word of God and to hear the words of Jesus recorded and inspired by men of God and the power of the Spirit preserved over 2,000 years and still alive today. May God speak to each of us today through the power of his holy word. We read today from the Gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter beginning in the 51st verse. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. May we pray together. Good and gracious Father, we come humbly before you. We have asked forgiveness of our sins, and we know that you are faithful to forgive. And so now, Lord, we pray that you would draw close to us through the power of your Spirit and through your Holy Word. Would you speak to us, our hearts today? May this be a meaningful time, a moment in our life where things change, where we would open our lives and yield to your strong and wise hand. We love you, Lord, and we need you. We cannot do this without you. So breathe through your holy words into our lives this moment, this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 9.51 marks a significant transition in the life and in the ministry of Jesus the NRSV translates it this way. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Taken up meaning what? Taken up simply to Jerusalem or more powerfully, more importantly, taken up to the cross or even more taken up to heaven. Well, probably all three. It also says he set his face, meaning that he is resolute. Jesus is determined. He is single-minded. His tone is sober because time is short and the cross grows near. Jesus begins moving south to Jerusalem to fulfill the very ministry, the very purpose of his life. And on the journey, on this transition, he meets with four groups, four would-be disciples. The first encounter is really between the Samaritans and those that already follow him. 
And Jesus sends a message, messengers forward, go and prepare a place for us. What arrangements? We're not exactly sure. Was he simply saying, go so that I might proclaim the kingdom of God? Well, that seems to fit. Or maybe he's just saying, go, prepare a place for us so that we could sit in the shade for a moment, share a time together, have a meal. Whatever the case, the Samaritans would have none of it. They did not recognize Jerusalem, and they were resentful toward anyone that was headed that way. They were resentful. They didn't consider it a religious center, and there was great animosity between the Samaritans and between the Jews that went back over 700 years. And as we know, even today, the memories in the Middle East are long. The Samaritans Rejection isn't surprising, but what really is kind of shocking to me is not so much what the Samaritans did. We would expect that, but the way that the disciples respond. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Perhaps we shouldn't be so shocked. After all, this is James and John. These are the brothers uh, Jesus had given them a, a nickname earlier in their lives, the Sons of Thunder. What great nicknames. Probably because they were hotheads. They were argumentative. They were brawlers and fighters. And these Sons of Thunder had been rejected personally. They had gone for their leader, their master, and they had been rejected as well. And, and so why not call down fire? Why not be on the, in, in the lineage of Elijah? Do you remember Elijah? In 2 Kings 1, it says, Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. And the sons of thunder are saying, that's our image of faith. That's our lineage. We see ourselves as prophets of God. And this is the way that people of faith respond when they're rejected or offended. And sometimes it is occasionally tempting and for a moment satisfying to think about such things. But Jesus turns and quickly rebukes them and reminds him that his disciples, those that will follow him, may never use violence to enforce the faith. We share the faith passionately, the good news of Jesus Christ lovingly. We share as if lives and destinies and eternities are at stake because they are, they exactly are, and then we relieve the results to the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has prepared the disciples for this moment, for rejection that would surely come. In Luke 9, 5, he said, and it's for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. You see, in Jewish custom, that was an act of judgment upon that town. It was almost as if saying, you, you by your rejection, you're calling fire down upon yourselves. But that is never our desire or our hope. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And we are reminded that as his disciples, this is our life's work as well. For all of us today that would call ourselves Christ followers. In the second encounter, the stakes get even higher. We're introduced to a, introduced to a volunteer who, who, who shouts out, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. 
And you know, the temptation as we read those words is to rejoice, you know. A lost sheep has been found. A coin has been rediscovered. A a prodigal son has returned. And, you know, I was thinking today, if someone walked the aisle, even this morning, you know, they recommitted their life. Or someone, you know, just said, I want to live for Jesus from this moment forward. Wouldn't we rejoice and wouldn't it be right? And so surely Jesus is going to rejoice in this moment Yet his response is confusing. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And at first it is confusing. Caleb was right. That's a confusing response. It's called a a non sequitur. It doesn't make sense. If I went to Sandy and I said, Sandy, where are we going to go for lunch? And Sandy said, well, you know, yesterday I read that it was very chilly in Colorado. I will follow you wherever you go. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Perhaps it's not as confusing if we fill in a few words. I will follow you wherever you go. Response, all right, good. But before you make such a profound commitment, know that I often have no place to lay my head. In fact, it wasn't long ago that the Samaritans reject us. We have no place to rest. And if you follow me, you may very well find yourself in similar situations. So count the cost before you make such a bold profession. Now, in the 21st century, we would respond to Jesus, you know, goodness, Lord, that's not really a, a good church growth strategy, is it? But Jesus teaches us that home and hearth and Possessions may not be the priority for those that follow Jesus. In the third encounter, the stakes get higher still. From volunteer to draftee, Jesus says to another, follow me. What incredible words. And and the draftee responds, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Now, to my ear, that seems like a, a perfectly reasonable request. In fact, in our culture, in their culture, we would commend this man for his devotion and his loyalty. Right up there with, you know, honor your mother and your father. Isn't that exactly what the man is doing? And surely Jesus will commend him as well. But once again, Jesus' response is surprising to us. In fact, everything in this passage to me is surprising and really, truly disturbing. If they were not the very words of Jesus, who would dare say them? But Jesus responds, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And through these words, Jesus teaches us that when loyalties to family, even to family, to community, to tradition, claim first place in our life, a disciple compromises the demands of the kingdom. He says, go, proclaim wherever you go the kingdom of God. This is the first and greatest and most immediate priority of your life. I wonder if it is ours. Finally, and truthfully, aren't we about ready to be done with this passage? Jesus encounters another volunteer with just one stipulation, just one but. Well, we know that That could be dangerous. The volunteer says, yes, but first permit me to go and say goodbye to those at home. 
And we say, right, that makes perfect sense. It's a reasonable request. Go, hug your family, kiss your mama, join hands around the dinner table, and say a prayer for your upcoming ministry. But at this point, we're not surprised by anything that Jesus says. And in fact, we would expect it to be different. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking bad is fit for the kingdom of God. I find that a little bit hard to understand at first read. I put it this way in my mind, though. You know, I've always been a city boy. I always have. I had some family back in Missouri, and they were all farmers, and they loved to torment me when we used to go back and visit because I didn't know anything about farming. Even so, you can't help but admire a beautiful farm, right? As we're driving uh, across the county, you know, we'll come across these beautiful farms, you know, the, the absolutely straight and, and perfect corn rows or, or the tobacco fields, you know, so straight, so meticulously cared for. And I can't help but imagine over the years, you know, the old time, the plow, you know, the, the mule hooked up and both hands on the plow and they're straining, you know, they're trying to keep it straight. Their eyes are set on, on the horizon. They're looking forward and, and struggling and, and everything. And even the tractors today, it's the same thing, you know, driving those tractors and marking a place on the horizon, aiming for that, never looking back. Because if you look back, if you're distracted, you know, you turn that wheel. Oh, and then you turn backwards, and if you're always looking back, you can't move forward. And you kind of wonder if, you know, that zigzagging, that looking backward, that being distracted is going to affect the harvest, that it won't be quite as bountiful. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom. Oh, those are words that are hard to hear. But through these words, Jesus reminds us that disciples don't live in the past. Their eyes are on the future, that, that we keep our eyes in the future harvest, the judgment that's to come. And we don't postpone what's important. He, he says, let me bury my father. Let, let me say goodbye to my family. And those words are hard, but on the other hand, how hard is it that how many ministries over the ages have never started because of the age-old excuse, you know, someday, someday in the future, someday I'll get it all squared away. You know, when I get out of school, then I'll be faithful. Or if I can just get these kids, you know, started in school, then, then I'll start. Or when I get that next promotion or that next job or, or when I retire, then it will be convenient. Listen, there's always going to be a reason not to be a disciple. There's always going to be something, an excuse that we can offer. And listen, there will never be a time when it's convenient to follow Christ. Being a disciple is life-changing. That's the very design of it. Being a disciple is, is sharing the gospel and hoping and praying passionately that you're going to change others' lives and in the same way you're going to be changed as you become a disciple. It's designed to be life-changing. It will never be convenient. And everything in this passage makes it uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. This is no weak-kneed discipleship that Jesus is describing, nor is it the vision of most in the faith today. Rather, it seems to me that most Christians have fallen under the spell of the prosperity gospel. 
That if we live generally good lives, if we come to church once a week and, and drop us something in the offering plate, that God will surely bless us and that we can live in the world without much interruption and, and for the most part, nothing difficult will ever happen to us. And that's an incredibly convenient theology, except it's completely unbiblical. Salvation is the free gift of God, but we should never imagine that the cost of true discipleship isn't incredibly high. We, we see in Luke 9 this incredible transition in the ministry of our Lord. It says he set his face toward Jerusalem. He set there was an intensity. The cross loomed large over his life. He knew that time was short. In our lives, too, we're going to have incredible times of transition. Think back about our early faith development. You know, we're often focused on what does it mean to be a child of God. We, we come with joy to church. We're excited to learn about what the Bible says and, and, and how incredible it is to be fully loved by a wonderful and caring Savior. We have incredible fellowship with one another. We enjoy each other's company. We feel renewed and nurtured and marvelously fulfilled. But at some point, as we mature, we begin to understand the cost of discipleship that you and I are called to walk beside Jesus in his footsteps. Even if that causes us to make difficult choices. And by the way, it's going to cause us to make difficult choices. In Luke 9, Jesus is resolute, single-minded. Time is short and the stakes are high. And he calls us to have the same understanding to share our faith passionately and then leave the results to him, to make the resources that he has blessed us with, that he has poured into so many of our lives, these are not simply resources to store in the barn, but rather now resources to be used for the furtherance of the kingdom. And above all, we are to live mindful of the harvest that is to come. I hope this passage makes you uncomfortable. If it does, you very well may be asking yourself, well, you know, in all honesty, why? Why would I want to step up to this kind of discipleship? Why? Because everything that Jesus has described is life-changing, but not only that, it's, it's hard. Why would I do that? This is really going to affect the trajectory that I have planned for my own life. Why? Well, I think there's several reasons that come to mind. The first is that we say that we love you, Lord Jesus. We love you. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he commands us to love him and to love one another and then go and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Secondly, why? Because we call Jesus Lord. Do you know what that means when you call someone Lord, why do you call me Lord? In, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? Because Lord means that I take my hands off the control of my own life, that I'm no longer planning the trajectory of my own life, that I am yours. And calling Jesus Lord is all-encompassing. 
Third, we yield our lives out of a thankfulness as we consider what he accomplished at the cross and whose cross it was. That was my cross, paying for my sins. And shouldn't that cause such a a sense of thankfulness and appreciation that we would say, yes, Lord, lead me. I'm yours. And still, we might complain that yielding in such a way, being that kind of disciple that Jesus describes, is it's frightening and it's hard. But you know what? Perhaps it's not as hard as the alternative. In my first church, there were about 45 members in this little country church. And when I say country, it was as country as country could be. There's about 45 people that came on Sunday. They just suffered a, a church split. Man, it was, it was a challenge. In that, in that little church, there were about six homebound members, and I would make the rounds every few weeks and, and go to visit. There were six, and about five of them I looked forward to going. And it was an incredible thing. You know, as I was a young pastor, I, I went because I wanted to be a blessing to them. And what I discovered was that every time I went to these five people, I always received a greater blessing than the one that I intended to give. But then there was a sixth man And the truth is, I dreaded going. It was a difficult, difficult visit every time. He was a tough guy, and uh, he was hardened. He was probably in his early 80s, and and, uh, it was just difficult. He had uh, chew cups all over the house and a Coke bottle, and he'd talk with you and spit, and sometimes he'd hit that bottle, and sometimes he wouldn't. He was tough on his wife as well. You could tell that she'd been beaten down over the years. And the only thing that he was generous about was his use of colorful words. He was constantly angry. He couldn't find anything good. And he criticized everything. He criticized that little church that I was called to. He criticized the deacons. He criticized me. I'd only been there a few months, but he found something. And I dreaded going. One day I came into his living room it had probably been about three months after I'd arrived and you could tell that in that living room it was different it was kind of a heaviness a quietness we sat in his uh, little living room it was cluttered with newspapers an absolute mess sat quietly I didn't know what to say and so he began to talk to me or maybe he was just talking and he said I think He said, I'm dying. I've got cancer. It's terminal. I have only a couple months to live. I was having a hard time getting my head around that. I didn't know what to say, and I was kind of thinking about how to respond to it. And before I even got a chance, he said, you know, in kind of a non sequitur way, he said, when I was 13 years old, I was in church one day. And I was listening to the pastor preach. And as I was listening to him preach, all of a sudden the Spirit fell on me. And I'd never felt like that before. And I knew in that moment with everything I was that I was called to be a preacher. That God had called me to be a preacher. And so at the end of the service, I flew out of my pew and I walked the aisle. And I told that pastor, God's called me to preach the good news. 
And the pastor put his arm around me. And he shared the good news with the entire church. And they were thrilled. And I went and met with the pastor later that week. And we decided that in two weeks that I would preach my first sermon in that church. Because that was the custom in those days. And so two weeks later, I got up into the pulpit and I began to preach. And it was terrible. I began to stutter. I couldn't remember where I was in that message. I got confused. I started to say things that I hadn't planned. It was all over the place. And I knew it was terrible. And so did the other teens that were in that youth group. We left church that day. Everyone said kind things. But as soon as the adults got out of the way, the teenagers came up. And they said, God called you to preach? That was the worst sermon I ever heard. You think God called you to preach? And they laughed. And they wouldn't quit. And it wasn't but a couple weeks later that I decided that I'd never go back to that church again. And now I, here I am at the end of my life. And I know that I missed the calling of my life. And I remember the tears that just poured down that leathery, crackled skin. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And you may neither if you follow me. That's not hard. Living counter to culture with a single-minded devotion for Christ. That's not hard. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ may be a little uncomfortable, may be a little frightening, but that's not hard. Missing the calling of your life? That's hard. Trying to live by worldly standard and kingdom standards, trying to live one foot in both, that's hard. That's why the Apostle Paul says this, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ missing the calling, living without that intimacy with Christ, that's hard. I wonder if you ask the webs, how hard is it to serve in India? I bet they'd say something like, you know, it is hard, but I get to serve my master there. And by the way, God gave us our daughter there. I wonder if you ask Aaron Smith, is it hard to work and serve in Kosovo? He'd say the same thing, wouldn't he? Yeah, it's hard. It's challenging. It's a rocky soil. But that's the place I get to serve Jesus. And by the way, that's where he gave me my wife. I wonder if you ask Hannah today, was it hard kind of just getting out of school and going and serving in Africa? You know she would say yes, it was hard, but that's where I got to serve Jesus. And by the way, he gave me a baby to hold 
and to nurture and to love. Listen, most of us will never be called out of Sanford. But make no mistake, we are called just as much to be disciples and the demands of discipleship are incredibly high. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord, we love you. We love you. We know that our love is so small and frail and dented compared to yours. For all that you have done through the sacrifice for the cross. Truly, Lord, words will never be sufficient to thank you for what you have done. So in some small way, Father, use us more than just our words, more than coming and singing great anthems. May we truly commit to being Christ followers, disciples. Lead us to those that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful. Give us wisdom beyond our own ability. Give us the desire so strongly in our heart that we'll prepare, that we'll do the work in advance. Help us to leave our butts and our excuses behind and simply be yours. You are our Lord. Help us to yield and lead us where you will. In Jesus' name, amen.